Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Caitlin Bigner onto the podcast. We're going to be discussing a variety of things today, including her journey, you know, how she got into physical therapy school and how she figured out what she wanted to do with her life. And we also dive into what that whole PT school thing was like. And we take it all the way up to where she is currently at as a pediatric residency, pediatric resident in Ohio. And she talks a lot about babies and pediatric physical therapy and all that other fun stuff as well. Great episode ahead. Before we get to it, though, here's a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by CTM Band and CTM Recovery Products. These are the exact soft tissue recovery tools that I'm using on myself and with my patients day in and day out. CTM Band was founded by Dr. Kyle Bowling, a sports medicine practitioner who treats professional athletes, and he was a former guest on the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. You can check out his website at the link below and use the coupon code BRAWN10 to save 10% off your order from CTM Band. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for asking me. I'm super excited. For people who aren't familiar with you and your journey to where you are now as a pediatric resident physical therapist, would you mind kind of filling us in a little bit about your backstory? Yeah, so just to introduce myself, my name is Caitlin and I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a new grad currently. I just graduated from University of Cincinnati, so super exciting. Just been kind of traveling this last month before I start my residency life. Uh, But in terms of what actually got me into physical therapy, I will probably rewind back to like fourth grade, honestly. Um, In fourth grade, I had this like episode of just fainting all the time. I just like would faint at Toys R Us or like at the mall randomly. (laughs) So my mom was a little concerned. So we went to a cardiologist. And that was kind of my first introduction to just like healthcare in general. And I remember it was probably a stress test that they ran at me. I had no idea at the time, but um, I went through a stress test and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever with like the ECG stickers on me and all of that. Um, And I found out that I just had like low sodium levels. And so my doctor literally told me like, just drink a Gatorade every day and you should be good. And I was like, no way. That's so cool. Like, I just have to drink Gatorade. Um, And so I thought at the time, like, I'm going to be a cardiologist because that was the best thing ever. Um, So I always kind of knew, like, I would want to be in the healthcare field um, some way or another. When I was younger, I was also really into soccer. So at age eight, I was actually on my first, like, select travel soccer team. And from age eight and on, like soccer was just my whole life. And the goal was always just to play soccer, um, go D1 for that in college and do something in the health field. In my sophomore year of high school, I joined a new soccer team. I went to a different club that was in just like a higher level of play. It was called the ECNL League. So it just had a lot more college showcases, a lot more college coaches could see you and it was just a higher level of play. I could tell at my first practice that this was just a different shift of energy for me. Um, We had to run the beep test and if you're in soccer you know what that test is but (laughs) you listen to this little beep and you have to run basically doing suicides and beat the beep and the beep just gets faster and faster. But we'd have to do that at the beginning of practice. And then for whatever beeps you didn't make, you'd have to make them up at the end of practice. And we did that every practice. I was like, wow, like this is intense. But um, if I want to play college soccer, like that's the level of energy we have to go with. Like I still love playing. Um, But another shift in energy came just with the intensity of my coach. He had us doing a lot of like push-ups if you made a mistake in practice, a lot of calling out girls for mistakes. We weren't allowed to wear like under armor if it was cold outside because it made our team look weak. Like it was just like a different shift of energy, like I said. Um, So I was still, still loved it, but I could definitely tell something was a little different. Then I went to Florida and for a a college showcase 
and I ended up doing a slide tackle and I really hurt my ankle. Um, it swelled up like a balloon and I was like, okay, like I'm out. Um, my coach said, oh, you're probably just scared. Like your ankle's fine. I was like, oh, okay. I'm just scared. Like I can't walk on it, but my ankle must be fine. Um, if only I knew like the Ottawa ankle rules at that age. <laughs> um, so I didn't play the rest of the weekend because I literally couldn't walk on it. Um, and I just thought, you know what? I sprained my ankle. I'll be fine. Um, that was in, I think it was a December month. Um, so then in January, which was our off month, we were expected to run two miles every other day and like report those mile times to our coach. And I was running like 16 minute miles, which is pretty impressive for running on a hurt ankle, but it wasn't good enough <laughs> for my team. And my coach just said I needed to get those times down. And my mom was like, you know what, should we go to the doctor for your ankle? Like, is something else wrong? I was like, we might as well. And they told me that it was broken, um, fractured, and I came back to practice in a cast. And my coach was like, what the heck? Like, what's wrong with your foot? And I was like, it's actually broken. And he was like, oh, like, okay, whatever. Like, I kind of just felt like an idiot, even just for having a broken ankle. Um, but so that was my first injury. Uh, I was able to rehab back. And my first introduction to physical therapy was through that broken ankle. And I loved it. I thought my PT was so awesome. She was so pretty. And I was like, you know what? I want to be just like this girl, Rachel. Um, we would gossip. And she really just cared about my sports journey and getting me back. And so that was my first, like, you know what? Maybe I want to do physical therapy when I like graduate and everything. Um, so I came back from that broken ankle and three weeks later, I broke my other ankle at our soccer practice. <laughs> I literally just like rolled my ankle super hard when I was cutting and I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Here we go again. Here goes my coach telling me like it's nothing. Um, so that time I went straight to the doctor and it was broken. <laughs> so I was back again in crutches. Everyone at school was like oh, I thought your leg healed. I was like, oh, it's my other leg, actually. <laughs> um, so I really, I lived on crutches throughout high school. It was great. Everyone wanted to be my friend and ride the elevator with me and leave class early. <laughs> um, but that was tough for me. Um, so I was basically out of soccer for like a year straight and my world was upside down because soccer was all I knew. Um, but I was back in PT again. And, you know, back with Rachel, she's like, it's nice to have you back, but it's also not nice to have you back. What happened? Um, and I got through it and I, I confirmed like, you know what, physical therapy is for me. Like, maybe this is just the sign I needed. Um, but I went back to soccer again. My mom thought I was crazy, <laughs> but I played my junior year and it was just not the same anymore. Like the Love I had for soccer was still there, but it was more of, I was anxious to go to soccer. I was upset with myself. Um, I was taking AP classes because I was a super nerd in high school. And <laughs> it was hard, it was getting really hard to balance school and soccer and hanging out with my friends and just kind of, you know, being okay. Um, so my junior year, I decided to call my coach and tell him that I wanted to quit. It was really hard for me, but, um, you know, he, he understood, <laughs> I make him to be a bad guy, but he was a really good coach. He made really great players, but it just wasn't the level for me and for my mental health. So I quit my junior year, but I kept playing in high school soccer. So there's select soccer, and then you still play your high school season. Um, so I was just playing my high school season and I loved it. It was way less stress for me. Um, we weren't very good, but it was still very fun. Um, so I played my junior year. I was even able to run like track and field, which I've never been able to do because I was always playing select. And my senior year um, was going to be my last year of soccer. Uh, and then my second game of senior year, I broke my leg again. And it was the big doozy. I broke my tib and fib. Um, I kicked the ball at the same time as the goalkeeper and I'm like five foot nothing. 
and she she was a big hefty goalkeeper so her leg one and mine just snapped in half and so I was just like prematurely let go of soccer and I was like devastated um because I knew that would be my last season but I also like didn't think it would be over so quickly right right Um, that's an incredible journey it sounds like you've had four different events that involved uh leg fractures at one point or another yeah, it, I like broke my arm again in like sixth grade. I didn't leave that one in there, but all from <laughs> soccer, yeah. <laughs> jeez, jeez. Now, yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting things about your backstory. One, to me anyways, it sounds like all of those injuries that came with your athletic career really kind of helped you find your future profession and career, right? Had you not gotten hurt, you might not have ended up in physical therapy and might not have ended up being a PT. Um, I know that might sound a little bit narrow-minded, but, um, you know, I'm willing to bet that if you took the soccer out of that, then you probably wouldn't have broken your leg four different times. Yeah, no, I think about that all the time. And I mean, at the time, it's so devastating to you that like, you just don't see, I mean, you don't see what's going to happen in the future. And now like, I I am thankful that I went through that because I mean, think about just all the mental health problems today with girls sports specifically, like not to sound like one of those jocks who says like, oh, I want to, I would have went D1 if it weren't for any injury, but I, I, I definitely would have played. And I think it would have been a horrible, like mental health toll on me. Um, So I think in that aspect too, I'm kind of lucky that I didn't put that pressure on myself because it is a crushing pressure to go through. So I feel for all those girls. Right. And we've talked about that at length with so many different guests on the podcast from Mary Kate Vaughn to Reagan Rust to uh, so many other individuals. And one of the things I like to highlight is that we also did a podcast with Dr. Frank Dick, where we talked about what makes a great coach, right? What is it that separates some coaches from others? Because unfortunately for some female athletes, their um, dilemmas that they faced or struggles that they faced, some of them are self-inflicted with different things, but a lot of stories that I've heard anyways, somehow tie back or relate to a coach. And I think it's essential to highlight the need for good coaches and good mentors in the athletic space. And specifically for the female athlete, I look at that as a very niche area or unique area for someone like yourself to shine because one, you have the backstory that you can relate to uh, what a lot of these athletes are going through. And two, you yourself now have the knowledge and expertise to cater to that target audience or population with what they need from a rehabilitation or even preventative medicine standpoint. And, you know, I like to think that the sky's the limit with what you do in a clinical setting, right? Like just because someone comes in for physical therapy doesn't mean I'm not going to ask them about, hey, you know, have you been sleeping okay or something like that? I'm sure you would do the same thing, right? Like if, you know, you get a 16 or 17 year old girl who comes into your clinic, you know, ACL tear or whatever, and you go on initial eval and you say, have you been sleeping okay? And they say no. And they start going on about the stress and different anxiety type things that they've had since they've gotten injured. Well, right. that you is a sign that you can explore that a little bit further and not just completely brush it aside. Right. No, I, I agree with the coaching thing. I mean, there are great coaches and you do have to be a tough coach. You can't just be this pushover, but there does need to be some way of like educating these coaches on like the signs of the female athlete triad and just the effects on the body. I mean, I did break my leg three times, but that's not very common to do. Like I would be uh, interested to see like my blood levels at that time, like um, things like that. All the girls on cross country, they would like talk about how they didn't have periods and like that meant met they were training hard and it's like at the time like you don't you don't know that but now that I've gone through school it's like you you can't be running that much you can't be doing that to your body it's not healthy it's what's the mental aspect of this that you're not talking about like there does need to be something with especially girls coaches and all sports um, at the high school level and collegiate level for sure 
Right. And I think you mentioned the point that a lot of people just don't have the knowledge and education for that sort of thing. You know, I think a lot of people mean well, but they don't always have the in-depth knowledge that goes into something like psychology or physiology or overall exercise knowledge and training load and that sort of thing. So I like to think that in general, people hopefully mean the best. They just don't always have the knowledge and understanding that goes with it. And I can understand in some cases that's difficult, right? Like, you know, you look at some of these coaches and they might not be getting paid the best. So are they going to take their full salary and invest that into Con Ed every single year and end up losing money to coach? So it's kind of one of those bigger problems and double-edged sword kind of things where, you know, you're screwed one way, you're screwed another way, but overall there needs to be some improvement in the system to develop better coaches. Because like I said, we've seen far too many stories like this on the podcast so far. I know. I totally agree with that. Um, It's interesting to say like how the coaches probably aren't paid enough, which they probably aren't, but just talking on this podcast like this, just getting education out this way, like people just need to start talking about it a little more. And I mean, soccer is amazing. Soccer is great, but like there are those aspects that take a toll on the body and the mind. And, you know, I hope more girls can talk about their stories like this and just say, you know, it's okay if you're not happy all the time playing soccer. It's okay if you're not scoring all the goals, like, it's okay to take that pressure off yourself, take a break. Like it's soccer is not the entire world. There's a lot more to it. And I didn't realize that at the time. And I'm glad I was able to just take a step back. Right. And (laughs) recognizing that it's okay to walk away, right. You know, it's not necessarily fun to leave the thing that you've done for so long. Incredibly hard. I mean, hardest decision I made, but I do want to bring up that there's, there's club soccer. I still played in college, um, but it was called club soccer. Um, My program had a club team and we still traveled. We still had practice twice a week, but it wasn't my entire life. Like I could still work. I could still go to school and get good grades and hang out with my friends. And I didn't break a bone that whole time. So I want to think that that was the best decision um but there is still club soccer there's still recreational soccer it's not shameful to play those um different aspects of soccer you don't have to play at the varsity collegiate level right right so how did those experiences that you were outlining in your high school days kind of impact your college days right so as you were going through your club soccer as you were going through your schooling for your degree in exercise science How did all of those past experiences influence that time that you were in college? Yeah, I think the biggest thing it taught me was that like I can't control everything. And that's hard for me as like this type A perfectionist that makes lists for everything and depends on her planner. But you really can't control everything. And one day you're fine. The next day, you know, you break your leg like. You just have to keep going and know that although it's out of your control, um, everything's going to work out for the best. So whether I didn't get so hot of a grade on something, like I'm still going forward. I can, I'm still going to be a PT. (laughs) I'm still like having the time of my life. Like it's okay if things come at you that you don't expect, you just have to kind of deal with it and keep going. But I kept that mindset throughout undergrad um, and definitely throughout grad school. (laughs) Right, right. And grad school in itself is a pretty big obstacle that gets put in your way, right? So undergrad, at least in my own experience, I was able to cruise through pretty easily without a whole lot of Mm -hmm. extra work and extra studying. There was uh, one semester, I think it was like my third year, I remember I didn't study for any of my finals, which I don't recommend doing, by the way. But <laughs> I got a ninety, advice, but... <laughs> I got like a ninety-nine on one and a ninety-four on the other, or something like that. Yeah. And it was like, okay, this is great. But then you get to grad school, and you know, I remember one exam I studied easily twenty plus hours for, and I walked out of there with like a B, and I was just like, wait a second, something's not right here. So mm-hmm. it's just a whole new level of difficulty or a whole new whirlwind yeah. thrown at you yeah no I first day of PT school our professor was like raise your hand if you have a 4.0 and then 
he was like this isn't gonna be how it is at the end of school and we were like what excuse me like but he was just trying to you know get us ready and let us know like it's okay <laughs> you don't have to get a you're not expected to get a hundred percent on everything like you're not gonna know everything but you're gonna know enough to be okay <laughs> so right yeah right it's a school in itself man so what was that journey through pt school like for you um i'm curious to hear about some of your different stories and experiences yeah. and that sort of thing yeah so i went to university of cincinnati in undergrad as well um i just love cincinnati if you can't tell i'm a big <laughs> skyline girl and i will never leave but i then went to pt school at uc um so it was nice to have that comfort of like, oh, I'm, I already know most of these professors. I'm familiar with the buildings and like half of the class um, was UC undergrad. So it was nice to have that familiarity, but it was definitely a shock to the system, like having exams almost every other week, every week, having practicals um, for someone who wants to excel on every single thing that she does. Um, but I, I felt like since I went through undergrad and went through those high school experiences, like I knew that I needed to put time into myself, um, in order to do well, like you can't be studying 24 seven and live a healthy life. Like you just, you can't expect yourself to know absolutely everything. And that's okay. I still tried to with the allotted time I gave myself to study, but I still made sure like I was playing soccer still on rec teams. I still went out with my friends as often as, often as I could. Um, but yeah, PT school, it was tough. It's a lot of time <laughs> spent studying, but it's, it's what I wanted to do. You're not taking like chemistry and your random sociology classes. Like what you're studying is what you're studying to become so I didn't think it was as hard to study for PT school as it was for like random undergrad classes you mean you didn't enjoy learning about like <laughs> plants and biology or yeah. things like that yeah I mean the chemical bonds I use them every day I'm just <laughs> so thankful I went through that but yeah it's it's different you're studying a little bit different stuff Right. And one of the different things that you get to do when you go to school for your doctorate that you might not necessarily get the opportunity to do in undergrad is you literally get to what I call look under the hood of the human body and dissect oh, yeah. the cadaver, which every PT that I've talked with so far always has interesting memories and <laughs> stories from their cadaver. So I'm interested to hear any of yours if you have any. Yeah. I loved Cadaver Lab. Um, that was probably my favorite class that we took. And I do just want to say like the donation of the bodies to science and to our learning is truly amazing. And it's a learning experience that you just can't replicate through a textbook. So um, I just want to say like that is an amazing donation and those bodies are always treated with respect and kindness, but we do have to dissect them. and. It is quite the experience. Um, one of the first things that pops to my mind is our gross anatomy professor. She is the sweetest, oldest, not oldest, but she's the sweetest um, older woman. And she taught at UC for many years. And she just went on in and like did a transverse like section of one of the bodies in front of us. No big deal. Just as if she's done this like hundreds of times before and it's just such a weird like image in my mind to see this sweet sweet professor able to just like dissect the body so cleanly in that manner um and just teach us but that I just wasn't expecting her to be able to do that with like a saw and everything 
Right, right. Yeah. At least for my cadaver anatomy, that part was a little bit more violent, I'll say, because they literally had a power saw that they were using. Like they just got it from Home Depot or something like that. Yes. It's crazy. To me, it was kind of crazy because I'm like, you know, this is the best we got. Like, but that's, that's just the nature of it. And um, what's interesting is you look into some of these different like orthopedic surgeries and that sort of thing. And it, to me anyways, it always kind of reminded me of carpentry, right? You have saws, you have hammers and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know why, but younger me had a, like, thought that it was a lot different than that, that it was a lot more (laughs) intricate and delicate and (laughs) not necessarily a shotgun approach like that. But, um, you know, sometimes (laughs) you need that. Uh, And what I like to highlight about cadaver labs too, every time I talk about them is every single human body was very different right everything about them was slightly different and i highlight that to make the point that you know every single person is unique and different in their own way just like your journey through pt school was very different than mine even though we both have the same two degrees we Mm -hmm. had a very different journey And, you know, I think that serves as a great reminder for people, especially in the health and fitness space, where a lot of times we end up arguing over like this versus that, what's right versus wrong, that sort of thing, that ultimately a good person is going to die events with their own color and turn whatever happens to their own benefit. And, you know, we're all uniquely different in the way that we're built, the way that we're wired, uh, even at the level of like your like nerves and nervous system it's very it's slightly different amongst every person so naturally it's best to learn from other people and learn from other experiences but recognize that you're going to do things the way that works best for you at the end of the day regardless of if your goal is playing soccer at a high level or getting through school or what have you yeah what an analogy you just drew from that that was beautiful (laughs) you should have done philosophy or something but yeah no that that it is everybody in cadaver lab is different and you had the bodies who had beautiful brachial plexuses and like beautiful arterial systems and then there were some where you couldn't find some of the arteries veins nerves um and it does it reflects from the inside to the outside to what you do with your life everyone's different and from taking that to through PT school and on as your PT every patient's presenting with the same diagnoses they're all different um you can't just do the same thing otherwise PT wouldn't really be a profession so right right and I feel like too often people are trying to make it a more robotic type of profession right just yes, do these things, I've seen just do those these things. stupid like online like have you seen them? It's like some sort of system that you input what's wrong with you and it tells you like exactly what to do. I'm like, wouldn't that be nice (laughs) if that was completely accurate? Right, right. And I'm, I'm thinking more along the lines of there's certain uh, clinics, I'm not here to mention any names, but there's certain clinics that I've seen or heard of or experienced where the model is, you know, okay, we have a patient with lower back pain. These are the tests that we're going to do every single time, period. Oh, we have a patient with shoulder pain. This is what we're going to do every single time. Oh, you Mm -hmm. know, your patient came in with knee pain. Well, here's the exercises we give every patient with knee pain. And And you're going to dry needle everybody, no matter what. (laughs) And unfortunately, when you start getting into that um, model of, you know, I I call it like mill, for lack of a better way to put it, like you just pump people through the same system over and over and over again your outcomes, in my opinion, I don't have any facts or research or anything to back this up. But to me, I think it would be uh, worse off than if you individualized and customized everything you do to the person in front of you. Because one, as we mentioned a second ago, everybody is unique and different. And Mm -hmm. two, everyone's demands in life, I'll say, are drastically different. We had a story about a year, year and a half ago at the time of recording, where we had six different female athletes on the podcast, and they talked about different issues that they were facing in athletics, different things that they were looking to do, that sort of thing, right? And one of the stories that stuck out to me from that podcast was someone who 
tore her ACL, right? And her rehab was identical to the person who was, you know, across the table from her, who was three or four times her age, right? Significantly older. Oh. And to me, if I have someone who's a college athlete who tore her ACL, who wants to get back to playing basketball, my rehab for that person would probably look a little different than, yeah. you know, <laughs> sure. 70, 80, 90 years old. That's not to say that older individuals can't load and can't overload, mm -hmm. but it's to say that there has to be a sports specific element and patient specific element uh, to the right. rehab. And that was certainly missing in that individual's case. Yeah, no, it'd definitely be interesting to see how like the outcomes for the quote PT mills um, versus like individualized programs. Um, if there's anything that shows those differences, because I, I would think the same, even though I don't have a source to back it up, I would definitely think the same. Right, right. And what's also interesting as we're talking about the human body and that sort of thing is most people start very similar, right? When you're a newborn, like you don't have all this basketball knowledge or soccer knowledge or anything like that. You're kind of a, for lack of a better way to put it, you're fresh and you're kind of a open book, just ready to <laughs> absorb things. And mm -hmm. I think that specialty of pediatric PT, which is kind of your own specialty, uh, plays an important role in development for the rest of someone's life, right? Like if you start right. someone off on the right foot, they're probably going to end up a lot better off later down the line than if they start off a little bit behind. Right. No, I agree. I mean, that's what pediatric PT is. You're starting with the newborns and you're wanting them to, you know, grow up symmetrically, as symmetrically as they can, um, make sure that they're meeting these milestones um, so that they, they can live that um, prosperous life. But so for people who aren't familiar with pediatric PT or, you know, who haven't really seen PT for newborns or three, four, five, even up to 12, 13 year olds in some cases, would you mind just kind of giving an overview of what the heck pediatric physical therapy is and what it looks like and that sort of thing? Yep, of course. So pediatric PT is the area that I am hoping to go into. I finished my PT school with a pediatric rotation. It was an outpatient developmental pediatrics. So they were kids with diagnoses like cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, torticollis, uh, idiopathic toe walking, and just like general gross motor delays would probably be the uh, most common ones that I saw. But for pediatric PT, you see babies as young as, you know, a few weeks old. I think the littlest guy I saw was six weeks old. And then up to, I would say like 22 is the oldest I saw, but um, you see them across the lifespan, which is pretty cool. Um, my CI, she had told me the story of this one little guy. He came in for torticollis and she saw him for that. And then she recommended him to a neuro clinic because she was seeing some neurological signs and he ended up having cerebral palsy. So she treated him from when he was this little infant with torticollis all the way up to today where he's 14 years old um, with cerebral palsy. So I think that's pretty special about pediatrics is you can really see someone grow up um, and grow up with them and be a major part of their life. Um, but yeah, pediatrics, you really work on just making sure kids are hitting their gross motor milestones um, while taking into account their age and their diagnoses. So it's a pretty cool puzzle you have to put together, but um, it's well worth it. I mean, as dumb as this sounds, like I wasn't expecting to see so many babies on my pediatric <laughs> rotation. I would say most of my patients were younger than 16 months. And I mean, it's a fever dream. You're just playing with babies all day <laughs> in simple terms. <laughs> but yeah, pediatric PT is awesome. And you really do grow up with these kids and just make sure that they're hitting all those milestones as well as their the appropriate strength, um, symmetry, stretching, um, things like that just along the way. 
Right, right. And that's the kind of thing that, in my own opinion anyways, doesn't get the attention that it deserves because I've seen a lot of younger individuals who they toe walk and people are just like, well, that's the way they walk. Yeah, and I mean, while, yeah, people don't know. Yeah, and, and, and while I'll say there's not necessarily a correct or incorrect way to walk, when you see something like that, it does become a little bit more problematic and that becomes more concerning than, you know, just a slightly altered gait pattern, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That's the other big thing with pediatric PT is a there's a lot more family involvement with every single patient. I mean, 95% of the time, you're working really with the parents as well as the kid because they're going home to their parents, their caregiver, their nannies in some cases I've worked with. Um, so you have to really balance educating the caregiver as well as interacting with the young child. So it's pretty right. interesting gift you have to have, um, a lot of balancing you have to do, but it, it's amazing. You really get close to a lot of these families. Right. And the impact, like I said before, the impact that working with someone at a young age and setting them up for success for the rest of their life, the impact that can have on them is intangible, right? So at one of my most uh, recent clinical rotations in New York, there was a individual who started PT at a young age because he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And this individual currently works out at a gym multiple days per week Mm -hmm. like he's getting stronger he's working out and he's pushing himself to stay healthy and work to a higher level of function and to me that's the kind of thing that you know I just can't help but wonder you know had he not had the team around him that he did at a young age had he not had people encouraging him and motivating him every step of the way what would he be doing right now currently because Although I haven't been in his shoes, I can imagine it would be a very difficult journey mentally, going back to what you were talking about before, Caitlin, to be the kid who is not at the same level of function as your peers because of X, Y, or Z reason, right? You know, why is it that everyone else is walking when I can't walk? Why is it that they're all reading when I can't read? That's a huge mental struggle, but I would imagine that increasing your ability to do those things will start to resolve that over time. Right. And that it's a tough conversation to have with the family um, in general. I mean, just saying, you know, you can't compare your kid to other kids right now because they have X, Y, and Z, but that doesn't mean they're not going to get there. Um, it just takes a, a few more hours of work, a bit more time, some assistive devices, but they can get there. And there's really amazing stories of kids with um, cerebral palsy who go on to do great things. I mean, the diagnosis really doesn't define them at all. And I've been really inspired by a lot of the patients I've seen with those diagnoses. But right. I did, I think I forgot to even talk about how I got into pediatrics um, in general. But the beautiful thing about uh, pediatrics uh, is the adaptive sports component that I've gotten into. So in undergrad, I started volunteering with adaptive sports and I saw a lot of those kids uh, with cerebral palsy, with Down syndrome, with spina bifida, who were just wanting to play a sport, not for competitive reasons, but just to even participate in their sports. And we would do 5Ks with them. We did bike camps with them. And I mean, these kids were amazing and the the sky was not the limit for them. Um, a lot of them went on and ran way faster than I could run in the five games. <laughs> and um, that was kind of my first introduction to pediatrics. And I didn't even realize like what PT role there is in that field. And I ended up working as a research assistant in a gate lab. And it was mostly kids with cerebral palsy. And we would do this gait analysis on them with like motion stickers and 3D motion analysis cameras before and after like a surgery or before and after like an intensive episode of physical therapy. And I mean, the differences in their gait and just in what they talk about and what they're doing and how much more stuff they can do with their friends. Like it was crazy. And I was like, PT like helps do this. 
Um, so that was like the main reason I got into pediatrics was seeing those adaptive athletes, which I, I still volunteer with today. And there's still so many amazing things that they do. Um, there was this guy who's on the U.S. para men's soccer team, and he came to the adaptive soccer camp that we ran. And I mean, he was awesome the way that he could strike the ball and like the guys who had ampu the amputee soccer, those guys could kick that ball so hard with just one leg. And it was amazing to see. And I'm sure they went through lots of therapy, lots of training, um, lots of rehab to get there, but they didn't let anything stop them from being amazing. Exactly. At the end of the day, you're not what has happened to you, but you are the person that you choose to become. And yeah. To me, the most specific example that makes me relate to everything you were just saying was Marion. We had him on the podcast about a year ago as well. He was an individual who was diagnosed with osteogenesis imperfecta mm -hmm. at a young age, and he broke almost every bone in his body. Like he was talking about how he fractured his scapula, which I didn't even know was possible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right after we recorded the podcast, he fractured both femurs. And yet he. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. He didn't let that stop him though, right? No. So he kept finding ways to move forward and he eventually found swimming because, you know, if you're in the water where there's not really a whole lot of impact, your chances of fracturing a bone are usually a little bit lower. So he took off with swimming and now he's on the Canadian uh, National Paralympic swim team. Which oh, that's again, amazing. Again, had he not found the avenues and the outlets that he did from a young age, so he got really into exercise, would he have ended up where he currently is? You know, that's a question that has no answer, right? But it's one of those things that makes you just think and ponder a little deeper, like maybe there is something to this whole concept of getting young kids active, right? Getting them mm -hmm. up and moving and starting to love just exercise or sport or whatever in general. Right. And if they no, that's if they don't that's have the ability to do it, finding a way to make them or help them do it. Right. No, that that's why I, I love pediatrics. I mean, I've I always love sports, but it kind of combined the two because you're you're not just getting an individual to get back to a sport, but you're getting them to be able to participate in one in the first place. So I just think it's very special. I would a hundred percent agree with you. And the thing is, it's possible for a variety of different conditions or diagnoses, right? Like, I feel like a lot of parents anyways, I'm not a parent that I know of. Um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of them, you know, they hear the term or the phrase, you know, your son or daughter, your child has X or mm -hmm. Y or Z. And that can be a very scary moment for them. It's kind of like that little freak out, like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? What now? Yeah. And they don't necessarily realize that, you know, there's someone else out there with that same thing who's crushing right. and killing the game. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's, we talked about cerebral palsy. It doesn't matter if it's that or torticollis or a variety of other pediatric conditions, right? Like even, even if you have like congenital, like deformity of your hips, right? Like I've seen division one college football players who have like hip deformities that cause them to have like the hip impingement and all that sort of thing. And yet they're still playing D1 college football. So just because you get told you have this or that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the rest of life is lost, so to speak, right? There's so many possible avenues for you to explore. Right. Yeah, it's that initial shock factor of this is happening to me. Like you're kind of blinded to all the good that's going to happen or the good you can do at the time. You do have to give them that time to let it sit in. But I mean, there's so many resources that, we give the parents and success stories and just let them know like we're here to make them the best possible person they can be along the way uh they just they're just gonna have to get over this hump um along the way but there are some amazing people out there amazing families and they do great things for their kids and i mean they're just the most inspiring people in the world for sure for sure so from your own experiences and schooling and kind of where you're going right now 
is there like a specific patient population that you felt more called to than others? Or is there one that you feel like you've been most connected with or knowledgeable about or that sort of thing? Yeah, so that's part of the reason I'm doing the residency is to help like narrow down that specific area because I feel like I love, have loved everything I've done. Um, but I'm definitely called to pediatrics and I only really have that experience in the outpatient developmental world. Um, which I love. Um, I could definitely see myself doing that. I mean, I have this one boy who we were able to get him to uh, get a little bit better at shot put. I had to learn about shot put. I'm not exactly like the best at, at upper body sports, but I did my best to learn it. And uh, we kind of learned together and got him stronger. And he ended up making there were two spots and he was one of two spots uh, on his high school track team to go and travel to his uh, track meet. And it's crazy because I mean, it, it was out of all typically developing kids and he was one of those spots. He was the only patient to make me cry on my clinical. So I, I would say I'm definitely called to um, the pediatric world, but whether that's outpatient, inpatient acute care, I'm not sure yet. Uh, kind of why I'm doing the residency, but I definitely love the the adapted sports um, athletes, which you can really integrate into any of those settings with pediatrics. Right, and adaptive equipment doesn't necessarily stop at sports and athletes, right? It can be, right. um, I'm trying to think of other ones. I think one was called like Go Baby Go. And I think there's a company called Permobile that has adaptive devices for individuals to just get around something like a school environment and that oh, sort yeah. of I mean, I've, we've recommended adaptive equipment for a one-year-old so that he could stand. Um, it's, it's amazing what equipment is out there, but I mean, the babies are cute too. I, I forgot about them. Like, I really liked working with all the infants and the kids with torticollis. So uh, I don't know. I, I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> for sure for sure so if you had to give advice to we'll, we'll start with parents and then we'll work over to clinicians if you had to give advice to parents for you know a child or you know their son or daughter or whatever uh and just overall like exercise and movement and things that they should keep in mind with their child's development what advice would you give to them yeah I think it's it's interesting when a parent comes in with their kid and says like we've been recommended for PT but we don't even know why it's like one like you probably should have been told but um it's it's like obvious from the get-go like their kid just has uh asymmetry in how they're moving whether it's how they're crawling how they're standing how they're walking how any sort of movement there's just some sort of asymmetry going on um so just for parents just to just be mindful of how your kid moves I mean do they go up the stairs consistently with one leg leading um do they always crawl like in a certain pattern just kind of keeping that PTI on because uh, once we point it out the parents like oh wait like they always always have their right hand in their mouth they always go up the stairs with their left leg it's like oh like it's just such a simple thing that you can you can miss if you're not paying attention to it. So doesn't mean anything's like terribly wrong, um, but PT can definitely help just make sure they're growing symmetrically um, and just scan for those red flags in case there is something uh, underlying going on. But definitely. Now, how about for other clinicians? So say someone is working with a patient who falls into that pediatric umbrella, for lack of a better way to put it, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, so I think for clinicians, the most success I've had is just making sure that you're including all of the family's wants, concerns, needs into what you're doing with the kid, because you're not just treating this child, but you're involving the whole family like the kids going back to the family, the family is going to need to help the child with the adaptive equipment. They're gonna help them with the home exercise program. Um, so really just always taking the parents' concerns, um, wants, needs, and providing those resources, providing those success stories um, while letting the parent you know, cope with whatever's going on. Um, we've had, I've had 
one child comes to mind. He was adopted through his foster mom. She just took him on. She's an amazing woman, but she was in like her 60s. And he had just this genetic condition that made him very dependent. And he needed, I mean, she just carried him everywhere in the house. Like, and I mean, she can do that for a period of time, but he was 10 years old. Like he's just gonna get bigger and it's gonna be harder. But um, she was just, she was afraid to work any adaptive equipment. She was afraid he would fall out of any sort of chairs or any sort of standards. And we really just had to work with her fears. We always had like the gate belt on him. We let her like stay very close to us. Um, we had multiple PTs in the room just to cater to her wants and needs because we knew it was best for the child to eventually have these adaptive devices but we weren't just gonna send him home with the worried grandma who wasn't gonna use it anyways because she felt better carrying him. So always putting the family's wants, needs, concerns into play as well as the child's. Um, a big thing with pediatric PT is the behavioral management component. I mean, it is normal for kids to act out. It's not as normal for adults to act out. So um, it's just a part of <laughs> being a kid. Um, so with the behavioral management, if a kid's acting out, like it's not always their fault, like you may just need to assess um, how you're doing this activity or change it to a different game. Like it's not always the kid's fault. You may have to be humble and look at how you're um, making this certain exercise happen. You, you just may be the one that needs to change it up a little bit. It's not because they're just being a crybaby all the time. <laughs> Right. And that goes back to our point earlier, being dedicated in your pursuit of endless individualization of your treatment plans and protocols for that specific patient. Right. So finding things that work for you. So we talked at length about adaptive equipment, but maybe that patient and their family can't afford adaptive equipment. So mm -hmm. what are you going to do then if they can't shell out two or three thousand dollars for that? What's your next strategy? Right because your next strategy might not be the research proven best thing for that patient, but guess right. what? That's the only thing that patient can do at that point. And I think that when you start to think outside the box, that creativity will kind of carry over into energy in your treatment sessions, right? So maybe you have that kid who's toe walking. I forget if it was you or someone else I followed, but someone shared a very creative way to um, help treat toe walking where they took those like swimming flipper things they're like ten dollars oh, store yeah and they put them on the uh, kids feet and they had them walk around in them and I was like that's yeah. genius like you know you can't walk with that but that costs <laughs> like 10 15 dollars maybe right instead most. of a AFO yeah right. I and also just, recommend I mean the OTs they can make anything <laughs> you want I mean we our OT that we uh brought in for this one kid who was working on deadlifting. He had hemiplegic CP. So like he just couldn't grasp um, with one of his arms. She made this split that had like this hook on it and that was like adjustable. She made it in like five minutes. I was like, oh my gosh. The, o the OTs can really craft together um, some amazing things out of nothing. So always don't be afraid to ask your OTs. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And you know, in general, look to involve other professions in the care oh, yeah, of the patient, sure. right? Like, don't feel like you have to be like Superman and do the whole thing yourself, right? Like, you know, you could work with speech language pathology, you can coordinate care with doctors and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Like, it yeah. doesn't have to you be have a to. show. You have to with pediatrics. I mean, there's so many eyes on these kids. And I mean, you have to be cohesive in what you're doing and keep everyone up to date with what's going on. And I, that's what I really love about pediatrics too. There's a lot of interdisciplinary care because you really have to, <laughs> you have to stay in communication with everyone. Definitely. Definitely. Caitlin, what's the future hold for you as far as residency goes and future um, avenues within pediatric PT? What's that looking like? Yeah. The future is in like 19 days. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Counting down. Coming back. <laughs> yeah. Um, my future is going to be a completing a pediatric residency program. 
So I applied for a residency at the end of PT school and I got it. And so it'll be about a 14 month um, process where I just do this residency with these amazing experts in pediatrics. That's awesome. That's awesome. For people who aren't familiar with residencies and residency programs, would you want to shine a little light on that quick? Yeah. So I think residencies are great, especially for people who have a certain uh, niche or avenue of PT they want to specialize in. Um, PT school does a great job in making you a well-rounded like general physical therapist. I would say more for adult care. Um, they don't really teach you how to be a pediatric PT. Um, I took one pediatrics course in undergrad and it was great. Uh, it was during COVID though. I didn't even like put my hands on a child or anything or see a child besides virtually. Um, so I just knew that I would want more um, learning, more mentorship. So I applied to this residency. Uh, residency is like, a, like I just mentioned, a lot more mentorship. Um, you, you should be getting some mentorship as a new grad initially, but in residency, you get it for that whole, they're usually like a year. Um, and you get to see a lot more settings. So for pediatrics, it's almost like I'm doing a bunch of glorified clinical rotations. Um, I'll get to see the NICU. I'll get to see outpatient again. I'll get to go to schools. I'll do acute care, uh, NICU, and then I'll also work in like specialty clinics. So you're doing a lot more opportunities that you wouldn't get just starting out working. Um, you also get a little bit more of research opportunities and unique advocacy opportunities, which are things that are harder to do um, just in a regular job. I think residency just provides a little bit more opportunities for you and also just lifelong expert mentors uh, as you navigate being a new grad. Um, the other benefit of residency, and this goes for all residencies, not just pediatrics, is you can sit afterwards for your specialization exam. So uh, if you didn't complete a residency, you would need, I think it's like 2,000 hours of direct patient care in a specific field uh, before you can apply to get your like cert certification that says you're a specialist. So after residency, I'll be able to take the PCS or the pediatric certification specialization exam and be specialized at like the age of 26, which is pretty cool. Um, it just, I think that just shows like your patients, the profession, yourself, uh, other clinicians that you've gone through extra training, shows the families that too, and that you are dedicated to that field. So long-winded answer, but that that's that. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. And you mentioned too that you're going to be exploring research opportunities as well. And to mm -hmm. me, that's uh, essential as well to kind of move things forward. I think that there's an element of, you know, overall healthcare, I'll say, that is related to your overall practice day in and day out. But some of it comes from research, finding out what thing is better than others. And I mm -hmm. think if I remember correctly, you've already done some of that. Is that correct? Oh yeah, I, I love research. Um, I wouldn't say I love like the, the sending stuff to the IRB and like all that background stuff, but when you're actually doing the research, it's pretty cool and exciting. Um, so that residency also helps me see where research fits into my life and um, allows me to just do a little more for the profession. Uh, same with the advocacy stuff. I just think advocating for the profession. If you're not doing that, why are you in the profession? You, you should want um, PT to go um, to the top of healthcare for people. And I just think we still have a long way to go with that stuff. For sure. But as we said before, the sky is not even the limit. It's beyond mm -hmm. that. I'm curious, too. I, I'm a very curious person today, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> For people who um, aren't familiar with your social media accounts, would you mind, oh, yeah. one, just sharing your usernames, but two, talking a little bit about the stuff that you share there? Because, sure. I mean, you've shared awesome stuff from, you know, notes on anatomy and physiology to different things about your own journey to different apparel and so on. 
Yeah. So my Instagram and TikTok, I just changed it. Um, it's dpt.biggie, B-I-G-G-I-E. A lot of people ask why Biggie, and it's not because I'm super big or anything. <laughs> like I said, I'm like five foot nothing, but it's just my last name is Bigner. So people used to call me Biggie when I was little. Um, but yeah, I, I was really nervous to start all my social media um, before I met Andrew Tran. I have to give him a shout out from Physio Memes. I met him at CSM, which is like the biggest physical therapy conference you can go to. And I saw he was wearing like this cool superhero PT shirt. And I was like, I have to, I have to get that and just started talking to him. Of course, he was like, are you from Cincinnati? Because I wear my Cincinnati stuff. I was like, heck yeah, I am. And we just kind of hit it off. And um, so I got involved with his brand, Physio Memes, and he inspired me to make a social media. And I was like, no way. Like, I'm so scared like of what people think or like if patients will find me. Um, and he just kind of said, like, just do what you want to do. Like, don't care about like if anybody is going to see it. Um, do what you want to do. And so I just kind of started posting. And once I started seeing that, like, I was helping people be inspired to get into PT school or helping people even learn about PT or get through school, I was like, you know what, like, this is awesome. And I love talking to people who reach out to me. So, but yeah, I, I use that social media to just kind of teach people about physical therapy. So that advocacy component, uh, just having the general population know, you know, we're doctors of physical therapy, we are experts in movement. Um, so just getting that out there. And then I would say the main thing is helping people in high school or undergrad or grad school um, get into and survive through PT school um, is the main thing I really have enjoyed doing. I, uh, a professor shared with me at the end of PT school that he received a I guess it was on our application, someone wrote their essay about my social media account and how that is why they're applying to University of Cincinnati. And you know what, I hope they got in. Like I hope they accepted them because that was amazing. And I had no idea that I could inspire someone that much. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I use my social media for, just all things physical therapy. Yeah, and it's, it's always good to give back, right? Life is yeah. not about going through day by day with a catcher's mitt in both hands. You ultimately have to be able to throw something back. And mm -hmm. the fact that there's the ability for younger individuals to do that, you know, at this time, I think is incredibly powerful and impactful. Um, you know, I still think back to uh, a couple months ago, I had someone reach out to me to say, hey, you know, someone mentioned you as a reference on their resume for this job. And I go, that's great. But I'm not even like, a, you know, I haven't even graduated yet. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that didn't exist like 10, 15 years ago, right? Like people mm -hmm. were posting this kind of stuff on their MySpace accounts. <laughs> it's a very like yeah. new, exciting thing. But the fact that you're able to inspire others to pursue their passions and help them along their own journey. I mean, there's no better gift than that in the PT oh, yeah. or in the professional development sense. Yeah. And I mean, when I was in undergrad, beginning of PT school, I, I wish that I could see like someone like me posting these things and like getting me excited about school but like I was very nervous but if I would have seen like what the day in the lives look like or what notes look like it's like okay like I, I could do that or that looks really cool um but yeah just kind of wishing I had someone like that and I've seen a little bit more accounts um nowadays but PT definitely just needs more representation Right. And you never know who you're going to inspire and what impact they'll have right. in the right. future. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, it, it's um, it's amazing how much of an impact this sort of thing can have when you look at the bigger picture. Right. Exactly. You, you might not even know, but you just you just keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. Caitlin, is there any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks that you want to share with people that we haven't discussed so far? 
Um, yeah, I mean, if you're interested, especially in pediatrics, like always feel free to reach out to me or just really about anything, whether it's physical therapy or not. Um, I think the overarching theme of just this talk was to, you know, the sky's not the limit. <laughs> you can't really control everything that comes at you and just keep going, whether it's a injury, whether it's hardships in school and your relationships, um, anything like that, like it really will all be okay in the end, even if you don't see it at the time. But the obstacle that was once in your path will become your path forward in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So yep. Caitlin, this has been an amazing episode. So appreciative for your time. And for those listening, make sure you check her out at biggie.dpt on all social media platforms. DPT.biggie. I just changed that, it. Sorry. I, I clicked it. I'm sorry. Jeez, I, I was conflicted. Right. I didn't know which way sounded better, but I've officially <laughs> changed it to dpt.biggie. You weren't wrong. It was that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Caitlin, thank you again. But yeah. Thanks, Dan. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.